Well, it's no secret that progressing in discipleship is a ministry pillar for our church. From the moment that God saved you, he begins to do a great work in a person's life as they become a follower and a learner of Christ. Over time, we learn how God's word emphasizes the importance of discipleship. We begin to understand how the Lord uses other believers to lead us by example and to teach us the truths of Scripture so that we can apply them to our spiritual walks. And as we progress, this allows us to become disciple makers, right? That's, that's the end goal. It allows us to grow in our confidence and our ability to lead and teach others as well. I was trying to think of an illustration, and becoming a disciple is a lot like going to the gym for the first time. Perhaps some of you can recall a point in your life where you walked into a gym or a fitness center for the very first time, and it was a little intimidating. You're like, what in the world does all this equipment do, right? And so, anyone recall that happening when you walked in? Okay, a few humble people in here just raising their hands. More than likely, you, you needed a person who could show you how to use the equipment and what part of the body that equipment uh, was used for. Some equipment strengthens your legs, while some strengthens your arms. Some is for your core and your cardio, or, or excuse me, your abdominal muscles. Others is for, um, there's machines, uh, bikes and treadmills for, for cardiovascular training. And if you stick with it over the course of time, what happens? You are able to use most of that equipment without asking anyone, right? There's, there's a process that, that takes place. And eventually, you're able to help the newbies, the ones who are coming for the very first time, who had that same look on, your, on their face that you did when you came for the first time. And you may even team up with an individual, or you could even team up with an entire group uh, of people for the sake of accountability and encouragement as you work out together. And the whole point is to be good stewards of our physical health and to make progress, right? And the same is true spiritually. Yet God's word says it's even more profitable. When Paul wrote Timothy, he shared, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. God's word puts a premium on our spiritual progress as disciples. But how can you and I tell if we're progressing? What are some markers or indicators for our spiritual growth? I firmly believe that Galatians 6 provides some very practical ways for believers to evaluate their spiritual progress in discipleship relationships. Our current series, titled Lean on Me, introduced us to eight life-giving principles so that we can thrive in our love and care for one another and that we can be someone in Christ to lean on. This series has encouraged my heart greatly, and I hope it has yours as well. You know, I don't know that we've ever really put it down on paper as it relates to uh, our care groups and the, the exact philosophy of ministry 
that um, is represented in, in care groups, but I would say that this series, for my own heart, and I hope for many in the room that have been with us for now the third Sunday, will see that this really is a philosophy of ministry as it relates to caring for and, and sharing our burdens one with another. Today we'll cover the last three principles found in verses 6 through 10. And by now we see just how vital these principles are in discipleship. They're truly life-giving principles. Not only should we apply them directly, but we can also use them to evaluate our progress and determine where the Lord might have us grow. As we review the first five principles, I've opted to put them in question form. And I'm going to set them up by the way of questions, just so those who have been with us, you can do a little bit of survey. Um, and those that haven't been with us, this will kind of give you an indication of what we covered so far. And then rather than read uh, the whole passage all in one shot, I'll read it as we review each life-giving principle. Principle number one, how can we keep in step with the Spirit? Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit by reminding ourselves of the gospel and Christ's righteousness that justifies us through faith. We don't want to fall out of rank in this regard. Keeping in step with the Spirit keeps us in line with the true gospel of grace. And this is the running theme throughout Galatians. There are good works and obedience confirm our justification. They don't contribute to our justification or our legal standing before God. That can only happen when we're justified by faith, when God allows you to see that you are not perfectly holy, and the emphasis on perfect. In order to stand before God when you die, you must be perfectly holy. And if you tried to keep all the law in the Bible, and and been successful but stumble at just one point, the Bible says in James 2.10 that it's just as if you're guilty of breaking all the laws. And so only the Lord Jesus Christ was able to come to the earth and keep the law and fulfill the law perfectly. And that's why when we as a sinner place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a great exchange that takes place. God imputes the wrath that was directed towards each and every soul in this room, right? Jesus was a propitiation. He absorbed that wrath on our behalf. And in exchange, Jesus gives us his perfect righteousness. That is the gift of grace. That is the gift of the gospel. And our justification through the gospel, is something that we need to continually preach to our hearts regularly so we don't inherit a legalistic or self-righteous spirit. As a disciple of Christ, am I keeping in step with the Spirit and progressing in my understanding of the gospel? Principle number two, how can we walk in genuine humility? Verse 26 says, Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another, we learn that our conduct and ministry to others is determined by the opinion that we have of ourselves. Pride seeks to exalt self over other people. Humility seeks to serve people. 
Pride is quick to point the finger at others. Humility is quick to point the finger at who? Ourselves. Genuine humility ministers through the lens of grace and faith. As we look to Christ, this is going to allow us to cultivate our Romans 12.3 mindset. So we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but we'll think so to have sober judgment. We won't ever lose sight of who we are without Christ. And this will prevent us from boasting in self and challenging and envying others. As a disciple, am I progressing in humility and how I view myself? Principle number three, how can we gently restore those overtaken by sin? In Galatians 6.1, Paul writes, Brethren, even if anyone is caught up in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. It's a measure of God's grace that he provides us with brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, to help us in our battle against sin. And we learn that this takes spiritual preparation. Those who are spiritual refers to those who are keeping in step with the Spirit and those who are walking in genuine humility. This is the prep work necessary to address the sins and sin patterns of other believers. And this must be done with gentleness. We can't do it rashly without gentleness or as we deal with sensitive areas of sin. Otherwise, we could be tempted to sin in the process. Am I progressing as a disciple in helping others see their sin? Am I progressing and cultivating a spirit of gentleness? Principle number four. How can we bear each other's burdens? In Galatians 6.2, Paul writes, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. All Christians have burdens. They come in different shapes in sizes and types. Some burdens are related to temptation and sin. Others are related to trials and testing. And these are the weighty matters of life. We learn that in order for someone to bear our burden, that we have to be willing to share our burden. And that this requires cultivating spiritual intimacy. First, our spiritual intimacy with the Lord as we rely upon him, who, according to Psalm The Psalter, he daily bears our burdens. And it also involves cultivating spiritual intimacy with other believers who God ordained for us to lean on as well. How am I progressing as a disciple in sharing my burdens with the Lord and with other believers? And why are all of these principles so important? And this is what it means to fulfill the law of Christ, which we affirmed was the law of love. The law of Christ helps us to love God supremely by loving one another sincerely. Let me repeat that for you. The law of Christ helps us to love God supremely by loving one another sincerely. Principle number five, how can we be aware of self-reliance and pride? In verses 3 through 5, Paul writes, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, 
He deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Paul warns us about the myth of self-sufficiency so that we aren't tempted to bear our burdens alone. Spiritual independence is really an oxymoron. There's, There's no such thing. And it's not a mark of righteousness, but rather a sign of pride. And pride always tempts you to draw comparisons and to boast in yourself. And we learn that God intentionally and purposely gives us more than we can handle so that we have to do what? That we have to come to him, that we have to depend on him, and that we have to depend on other believers. No one is meant to live on an island, a spiritual island. We, we need each other. Every single person in this room, first of all, needs the Lord to bear their burdens, and they need others to bear their burdens. Some of the Galatians were distorting and deserting the true gospel by allowing the fleshly work of circumcision to be something to boast in. And so Paul had to warn and remind them that each person will give a personal account when they stand before the Lord in verse 5. And now we have arrived at verse 6. And at first glance, you might think, these verses, 6 through 10, aren't connected with bearing each other's burdens. Well, let me just share, our context will prove otherwise. I'll start by reading them, and then I'll share more. Galatians 6, 6 through 10 says this, The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Pray with me. Father, we do come submitted to your word this morning. We want to humble ourselves, asking that you would continue to use the word of truth to sharpen us as believers, allow the insights and the principles that we're seeing to um, not fall on deaf ears, but to impact us in such a way that they transform us, that they cause our lives to change so that we can put you on display that we can give you greater glory in the process. This world is facing an uphill battle of disunity, and only the gospel and the proclamation of the truth and the need for Christ can overcome it. And so we pray, Father, specifically, that you would allow us to embrace these truths And help us to continue to grow in Christ and to be someone to lean on. We ask this in his name. Amen. In the Greek, verses 1 through 10 are all tied together. And so it can be a little deceiving in your English translation because some of you, I would imagine in your Bibles, when you get to verse 6, you see it as a separate paragraph. And you might even see 
a, a separate heading above it. But rest assured, this is all tied together in the Apostle Paul's mind. We know this because there is a conjunction and left out of some English translations. And we'll also see how this verse fits perfectly into our context. Our six life-giving principles so that we thrive in our love and care for one another. And so that we can be somebody in Christ to lean on, ironically, comes in verse 6. Let us share what we are learning The verse actually says, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. The most common interpretation of this verse, if you divorce it from its context, it claims that Paul is exhorting congregations to pay their pastors or teachers fairly. But nowhere in this passage does it mention finances, Or material support. Add to the fact that if Paul wanted to focus on elders, pastors, or teachers being compensated, there are Greek words that he could have used, but instead he uses the nondescript pronoun that he has used throughout verses 1 through 10 to represent believers in general. The key word that unlocks the meaning and, and ties it to our immediate context is the verb translated to share, which is the verb form of the Greek noun koinonia, which means fellowship. The verse could literally be translated, the one who is taught the word is to fellowship over all good things with the one who teaches. Changes it, doesn't it? Powerful consideration. Here, fellowship points us back to restoring someone caught up in sin which we just learned about, and also connecting it to bearing each other's burdens, whether that's a burden of sin and temptation or trials and testing. The basis of our fellowship, of course, is Jesus Christ and the gospel and the word of God. And here Paul affirms for everyone that if you really want to bless your teachers and fellow believers, share with them or fellowship over the good things that they're teaching from God's word is accomplishing in your life. That's what he's saying. Keep in mind that the people whom Paul is writing to, did they have copies of the scriptures? No. How did they learn? How did they um, retain? Right? Everything was held in oral tradition. They went and they listened to teachers that instructed them. And oftentimes they didn't have anything to write anything down. They had to zoom in on the words that were being shared and cling to them. And as they did, people were saved through hearing the gospel. As they heard instruction from God's word about their sin, lives were being changed. And Paul is basically saying fellowship over how the gospel is transforming your life. Share how instruction from God's word is helping you in your battle against sin and temptation. Share how it's strengthening you and helping you persevere through trials and persecution that you are facing. Honestly, I cannot think of a better description of care groups. Honestly, that's it. This is, this is a picture. We get to 
rally around the word of God, right? We get to share and fellowship about what it is that we're learning. And then we have the opportunity to teach others and pass on truths that address the specific situations in the areas of our lives. That's care group. And though different people might lead the study, different people might lead the Roman study and the, and the care group that you're in, everyone shares insights into what they're learning and studying in Romans during the week. And as disciples, disciple makers, each of us, to some degree, is called to be a leader and a teacher. Paul is not limiting teachers here to gifted pastors or elders, though it can include them. But that's not the limitation. This is an exhortation for everyone in the church who is in a disciple-making relationship. And it centers on the fellowship of the church. How might your testimony be used to encourage someone in your care group? What truth might you share as you're learning and studying in Romans that helps someone gain victory over an area of weakness in their life? What might you share that could help them with an ongoing battle with anger or impatience or an ongoing battle with gossip or a critical spirit? What promises have brought you hope when you were despairing or heartsick? How did you find strength after your loved one died? After you suffered a miscarriage? How did you persevere by faith when you lost your job? What passage did God use to uphold you by faith? What brought you comfort in the time of your affliction? Brothers and sisters, this is real life, right? This is is real life. This is This is why we get together. Yeah, there's a social element, and we appreciate that. It's great to catch up and just hear about how each other are doing. But when it gets down to business, right, and why we're there, and what we're centered around, and how we're going to encourage each other to spiritually grow, it's going to be our investment into our our own lives, right, as we study the word and as we grow and are strengthened so that we can help our brother or sister to our right or to our left to be grown stronger as well. And they get to reciprocate. And this is also how we bear each other's burdens as we lean on Christ and each other in discipleship relationships. Let us share what we are learning. What an encouragement as we just embark and go into this care group season. Let us not uh, come to care group without something to share. You know, dig it out. Find it. Get that truth that is going to rock your world so that you can pass it on and it can rock somebody else's. God will use it. He'll use it to impact our fellowship so that we can all be someone to lean on. Well, there's a seventh life-giving principle that comes in verses 7 and 8, and it's this. Let us encourage spiritual investments. Those who work in the financial world understand that there are 
principles and returns when it comes to investments. The principle, like, a, like with a bank account, your principle, if I understand correctly, involves a starting point. For example, how much money would you like to invest? What's the principal investment? What are you bringing to the table to invest? The return on your money can be positive or negative depending on the risk and outcome of your investment. If you're in the business of making money, then you want positive returns on your investment. Nobody ever comes to the table to make a financial investment so that they can lose money, right? That would be foolish. How can you and I make sure that we aren't foolish when it comes to our spiritual investments? Verses 7 and 8 are powerful, especially when we consider them in their context. Paul, led by the Spirit, records this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul starts with an admonition or warning in verse 7. And then he provides an explanation when we get to verse 8. He gets our attention right away by saying, Do not be deceived, which he uses on two other occasions both of which are found in his letter to first, the first Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul writes, Do not be deceived before he warned against the kind of lifestyles and sins such as idolatry, adultery, and homosexuality that are, that are incompatible with the kingdom of God. Then again, in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three, he says, Do not be deceived before he warned against godly influences, stating that bad company will corrupt good character. And in all three instances, Paul is worried about the eschatological or future inheritance of those he warns. And here in Galatians 6-7, the deception into which the deception into which the Galatians had fallen or were in danger of falling was even worse, as it threatened to mock God. The Greek word translated mocked literally means to turn up the nose in mockery or contempt, to scorn or to sneer. As previously noted, some of the Galatians were denying the gospel of grace that Paul had just preached and were clinging to fleshly works of the law. They were in every way deceived. Missionary Clarence Jordan writes, Don't let anyone pull the wool over your eyes. You can't turn up your nose at God. End quote. Pride and self-righteousness mock and scorn the Lord. John MacArthur adds, For a believer to sin willingly in any way and to any degree is to deny his Lord. But to sin while thinking that he is somehow immune from God's standard of holiness, is to mock the Lord and mimic the world. End quote. Mm. We feel the weight of that, don't we? And this is why the Lord led Paul to conclude his warning with what he does at the end of verse 7. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And as you know, Jesus regularly used uh, sowing and reaping parables 
throughout the Gospels. And the reason that he did this is because everybody and their grandmother was familiar with the agricultural concept that he was talking about, and it was no different uh, for Paul. He had an agriculturally familiar audience as well. When you plant or sow a seed of corn, then you will harvest or reap corn. Sunflower seed, likewise, produces sunflowers and so on. Because many in our church are city slickers, it's easy for us to lose some of this graphic imagery that Paul's listeners were surrounded by. I mean, they saw stuff planted regularly. They didn't have super Walmarts and great grocery stores and Whole Foods to run down to. They were sowing seeds and waiting on the harvest regularly. Yet what is so beautiful about this is that even the youngest of children can understand this concept. Now Paul offers an explanation of this concept, using it as a spiritual illustration in verse 8 when he writes, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This flesh-spirit opposition has been seen throughout all the letter. And of course, we didn't preach expositionally through this book. We just kind of parachuted in right here at Galatians 6. But those who have read the book of Galatians or studied through it are familiar that this is throughout the gospel. And it started in chapter 1 when the Galatians abandoned the true gospel of grace and they were clinging to self-righteousness and circumcision. Then there's this ripple effect throughout the rest of the book. And the clearest contrast that we see between the works of the flesh and the spirit comes in chapter 5, verses 16 through 24, which I invite you to read with me. And as we go through it, I'm going to add some commentary. Starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Stop there for a moment. Literally, it's saying in, in the Greek, they, they lust against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And this is the corruption that the flesh produces that that we're looking at in verse 8. This is the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Paul's saying, listen, I'll just give you some, I'll give you a general list to help you, but this is far from being comprehensive. We get that. But then he goes on, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice, a fuller translation is make it their habit to do, or make it their habit to practice 
such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the gospel does. It changes our hearts, doesn't it? It, it gives us and, and, and gives us a new desire because we're a new creation to live for the sake of righteousness, right? And that's where the great battle begins. And it continues and will continue all the way through the course of our lives on this side of the cross. There will always be a battle for a believer, but we know this. Eternal rest awaits, right? Is there. So we're called to perseverance, which we'll talk about just a little bit later. Now here's the contrast. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Nothing has to govern that. Right? You can, you can lo- be as loving as you can. You can be as kind as you can. You can't cross the line and offend God by, by doing these things. Why right? having these attitudes, which they really are, they're attitudes that are cultivated within the heart of the believer. Verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And this happens progressively in our sanctification. We understand that. that we're called in to, to battle, right? Now I want you to do something. I want you to notice the very next verse after 24. Verse 25. And this is where it all began, friends. This is where the entire Lean On Me series started, right with these transitional verses at verse 25 and 26, going into bearing each other's burdens in verses 1 through 10. And so we can see how verses 7 and 8 point us back to this near context, as well as the wider context of the entire letter. And so when it comes to sowing seeds of the flesh in verse 8, We need to ask the same question that Paul would have the Galatians ask themselves. And that is, do I see any evidence of my flesh leading to a pattern of sin that denies the gospel? That's that's Paul's purpose for his letter. As he upholds justification by faith. And he would still, as we bear each other's burdens, as we live in freedom of the law, we're no longer under the law, right? But he would still have them look at themselves. Look at the deeds of the flesh. Do I see any evidence of my flesh leading to a pattern of sin that denies the gospel? The particular sin that Paul addresses so strongly throughout this letter is legalism. And that was being spread rampantly by the Judaizers. And it undermined the gospel by placing human works between Christ's sacrifice and man's salvation. Because that sin was so rooted in the flesh, it led to countless other sins. Which Paul just listed out for us in verses 19 through 21 of chapter 5. So how does Paul want us to respond to someone who is caught up 
in a pattern of legalism or caught up in a pattern of sin listed amongst the the deeds of the flesh? How would he have us respond? Does he encourage us to stand over them with a condemning spirit? I don't think you're a believer. (laughs) Apparently you're not a believer. Stand over them, judge. Does he instruct us to take them out to the spiritual woodshed and give them 39 lashes for their obvious transgressions? No. No. This brings us full circle all the way back to where we started the sermon series as we went verse by verse from verse 25 onward. And I believe our response and the spiritual seeds that we sow to the Spirit are found right here within our study. We are to keep in step with the Spirit. We are to keep in step with the Gospel. We are to walk in genuine humility. We are to gently restore those overtaken by sin. We are to bear each other's burdens. We are to beware of self-reliance and pride. We are to share in fellowship over what we are learning. And we are to, to encourage all of these spiritual investments. Right about now, I know some of you. You're going to be tempted to say, well, I thought the sowing and reaping principle goes way beyond this. And and it's possible that you could even hear a message. um, It would be a topical message as it relates to sowing and reaping, which is fine. And because I do think that there's ways that you can apply this principle beyond its context. But here in Galatians 6, we need to understand it within the context in which it's found. Why do we find it embedded within this whole idea of bearing one another's burdens? Regardless of what your preconceived notions of sowing and reaping might be, Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to record it here in this exact context. Can a person earn a financial return on their money if they never invest it? No. Sorry for all of you with money under your mattresses. You're not going to earn a return. At minimum, you at least put it in the bank so it can draw a a little interest, right? It's it's not going to be huge. And if you're serious about making gains and progressing in your financial um, uh, portfolio, then you're going to seek out the best investments. Right, Francis? Of course, you're going to seek out the best investments. And we need to encourage each other to make the best spiritual investments in the lives of our fellow believers and to sow to the Spirit in a burden-bearing context. And this involves practicing the life-giving principles that we have learned from verse 25 onward. This involves encouraging one another to keep in step with the Spirit and repenting of the deeds of the flesh. And this is going to involve us in investing great deals of time, great deals of energy, 
It's also going to involve us investing and being vulnerable with our hearts in those relationships. We'll need to be vulnerable and trust the Lord. We'll need to encourage each other to deeply invest in spiritual accountability and deal with our sin head on. And we will tackle our sins and temptations together. We will invest in helping our brothers and sisters restore broken relationships. We will shoulder the trials of life and share our greatest burdens with the Lord and with each other. And this is what sowing to the Spirit looks like in the context. And according to verse 8, this is the pathway to eternal life mapped out for us. This is it. This is it. But now it's time for the million dollar question. Are you ready? That wasn't the question. Will it be easy? Will it be easy? No. It won't. And the Lord knows this. And the Apostle Paul knew this. And thus he, he writes a conclusion which leads us to the eighth and final life-giving principle. Let us not lose heart when things get hard. The Holy Spirit led Paul to record these concluding words for the Galatian believers. And now for us in verses 9 and 10. In verse 9 Paul writes, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. If I could summarize Paul's closing exhortation here, just with one word, it's persevere. Take that word to heart, persevere. The Lord knows it's not easy to make disciples and to bear one another's burdens. The, like, the Apostle Paul likewise experienced the challenges firsthand. Yet both would have us know that they did see progress. They did. And so will we if we do not grow weary. Paul continued using this agricultural imagery, letting us know that we will eventually reap fruit from our earthly spiritual labors if we do not grow weary. Or this verb can be translated, grow discouraged. God's word is saying, don't get discouraged. Yet if we're truly honest with ourselves, one of the greatest frustrations in Christian ministry and the primary cause of weariness is the inability, our inability, to calculate the spiritual outcome of faithful labors and discipleship. You know, if you think about it at face value, it's great for the farmer, right? He plants seeds, he waters them, and he knows if there's going to be, a, if and when the time of the harvest is going to come. He's going to see it firsthand. It's not true for us, right? And so thus, Paul had to give us these, these words and remind us that there is a harvest that will come. And this is why we need to be cautious of putting too much stock in what we often call visible results. God is the one who grows the physical fruit on trees, and he is the one who grows the spiritual fruit in the life 
of a believer. And we just do our best to sow and water and trust our sovereign God who has promised us that his word will not return void. Over time, we will reap the fruit of seeing those who were once weak in their faith standing stronger. Over time, we will see the fruit of that marriage that was hanging on by a mere thread being wrapped and enveloped in the cords of the gospel. As they learn to repent, as they learn to forgive, as they learn to reconcile. Over time, brothers and sisters who once struggled in a pattern of sin and deeds of the flesh will have victory and share with us the fruits of righteousness. The Lord will graciously allow us to see what he produces and reap a harvest. Puritan author and minister Samuel Rutherford Maybe you've heard that name before, but some of you may not. He had this perspective to share. It's really good. I want to share it with you. The great master gardener in his wonderful providence has planted me in this part of his vineyard by his grace. And here I grow and abide till the great master of the vineyard thinks it's fit to transplant me. Give him leave to take his own way of dispensations with you. His people must be content with what he carves out for them. Christ and his followers suffered before they reached the top of the mountain. But our soft nature desires heaven with ease. All who have gone before have found sharp storms that took the hide off their face and many enemies in the way. His ways are far above me with windings we cannot see. Obstacles are written in the Lord's book by his wise and unerring providence. We see only the outside of things. It is a well-spent journey to crawl hands and feet to enjoy him at the wellhead. Let us not be weary. We are closer than when we first believed. Do not focus your thoughts among the confused wheels of secondary causes. Oh, if this had happened, or if this had not followed. Look up to the master motion of the first wheel. In building, we see hewn stones and timbers until hammers, under hammers and axes. Yet the house, in its beauty, we do not see at the present, but it is in the mind of the builder. We also see unbroken soil, furrows and stones and stones but we do not see the summer lilies roses and the beauty of a garden even so we do not presently see the outcome of god's decrees with his blessed purpose it is hard to believe when his purpose is hidden and underground providence has a thousand keys to deliver his own even when all hope is gone let us be faithful and care for our own part. Amen. Amen. Let us care for the part that God has assigned each of us in his vineyard. 
and let us remain fruitful so long as he has us here. And let us take the words that Paul concluded with this entire section in verse 10. Let us take these to heart. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Praise God. And he'll lead us. He'll lead us. He'll lead us. He'll lead us every step of the way. And we already know that he's led us by example. Praise his name. Pray with me. Father, we, um, again, have been humbled in many ways. I know my own heart was uh, during the study, but yet, um, in, in, in a strange way, there's a, a dichotomy here that allows our hearts to take great encouragement as well. And we do want to receive the exhortation that you led Paul to record for us, that we wouldn't grow weary and that we would not lose heart. And we would see the tremendous value of making these spiritual investments into the lives of those that we care for and love. Those that we currently are in care group with. Those that will lean on us and we'll also lean on them. Help us to cultivate spiritual intimacy. Help us be willing to love and care during trials and difficult seasons of life. And we want to do this because it's an expression of our love to you as we love you supremely and as we love others sincerely. This is how we'll fulfill the law of Christ. So, Father, I just thank you on behalf of our church family for this, this study that we've experienced over the last three Sundays. And I pray that we would continue just to keep digging it out, keep learning, keep growing, keep loving, keep persevering for your name's sake and for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.